Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homey, and I am your host. I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Please check out our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com and discover how we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. We have a variety of episodes covering a breadth and depth of issues relevant to business creators just like you. Also check us out on your favorite syndication network. We're on most, if not all of them. And be sure to subscribe for fresh content in your inbox on a regular basis. Also, if you're listening to this live, to make sure that you have the ability to go back and listen for greater and more profound understanding when you discover something that is highly valuable to your efforts as a business creator. Today, we are going to get into something that actually kind of grinds my gears, believe it or not. I have a major bug when it comes to how organizations train and educate their people. I have another bug about when it comes to sales education. And that's what today's topic is going to be about. Modern sales education. And when you meet the guests that I have for you to help you with this, you are going to, let me just say you're welcome. The gentleman's name is Andy Paul. And aside from being the host of his own top-rated podcast, Educating and Inspiring Sales-Level Professionals to Take Their Expertise to the Next Level, this show is called Accelerate. His name is Andy Paul. He's a business owner, and he's a sales professional extraordinaire. Andy is number eight on LinkedIn's list of the top 50 global sales experts, where over 166,000 professionals follow his daily posts on sales. He is the author of two Amazon best-selling books, as well as the founder of The Sales House, the first all-in-one modern personal growth program for modern B2B sellers. And again, his top-rated podcast, which is called Accelerate, with Andy Paul, with more than 700 episodes produced and nearly 2 million downloads, is the go-to resource for sales leaders and top sales producers. And in fact, I follow Accelerate. I've been aware of that podcast myself for a couple of years, and it's one of the ones I check in on from time to time. It's got great stuff there. So right now, Andy, Paul, if you could come on in, the weather's fine. Adam, thank you for having me on the show. You know what? Just, uh, just knowing who you are and having had the opportunity to look into what you're doing a little bit, I'm not even sure I am worthy to be on this show. And this is my podcast. Oh, <laughs> uh, so, no, I'm so, sure. So get, so, I'm sure. Yeah, so get, <laughs> so, I, so I do want to express my appreciation to you for joining us here at the Business Creators Radio Show. As I mentioned, this is a topic that really burns my oatmeal and grinds my gears because it's so important. And not understanding some of the things you're going to share is part of the reason why business creators struggle. Before we get into that, though, I imagine by now people are leaning in. They're looking up this Andy Paul. They're binging the Yahoo out of the Google to try and find it, going duck, duck, go as they go along. And they're looking up this Accelerate podcast and everything else. They're trying to discover a little bit more about Andy Paul the man. So what we'd like to do here is just take a quick step back. I read off that very impressive bio. And what I'd like to do is have you tell us a little bit about 
your journey and what brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for that that kind introduction. Um, well, I mean, I, 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 see, I was in sales working for other companies for about 25 years, primarily startup companies. I mean, I started my career working for a big computer company and then worked for Apple in the very early days of Apple. And then after that, I think I worked, before I started my own company, I worked for seven different startup companies, tech startup companies. And right. increasingly selling products of, of increasing complexity and size. And so I like to have sold everything from women's shoes to communication systems worth tens of millions of dollars. But the thing is, there's a lot of commonalities throughout that whole spectrum of, of customers in terms of, you know, how do you, how do you connect with another human being to begin this process of, helping them make a purchase decision. And so I was really, uh, back in the year 2000, made the decision to take some of this expertise I developed, which was really along the lines of when you're a small company with no brand name, no track record to speak of, and you're selling uh, around the world, competing against companies with you know, multi-billion dollar, multinational corporations with all the resources in the world, how do you compete and win in those circumstances? And so I started my company to really right. help small, small, mid-sized enterprises learn how to do that. And did that really up to about 2012, 2011, 2012, when I moved from Southern California and San Diego to New York City after I got married and sort of said, okay, I got to reinvent myself here because uh, my consulting business, all my clients are back on the West Coast and so I was trying to sort of say, okay, what could I do differently? And it was this idea of writing my first book and becoming a, a blogger and a speaker and so on. That's sort of when I started that, that path. And it really took on a life of its own that I hadn't really anticipated. And uh, I guess because the message that I talk about resonates with, with people out there. Sure. Sure. So, I mean, so here I am today. Know, with the, yeah, I know. And you know, my story is not entirely dissimilar. One of the reasons I created my book, Groundhog Days and Event, Not a Business Strategy, and the foundation of some of the work that I do with companies comes actually from my sense of frustration having been myself on the front lines of various companies and seeing the real reason why people get disgruntled. Also, the nature of my work in one of my previous business centers brought me in contact with a lot of customer support reps and a lot of tech support reps where I felt like I was speaking with somebody on another planet. And I started to think about that. Like, how, how can these people on the other end be so clueless about the basics of how to treat a customer? And then I began looking inside these companies. And I discovered something, a few things that are actually pretty harrowing about how some of this stuff works out and how the ripple effect from how companies treat their employees, and sometimes it's a conscious thing and sometimes it's an unconscious thing, leads to this ripple effect where they sometimes unconsciously and sometimes very consciously take it out on their customers. I've also seen the phenomenon yes. where, uh, where I've, and I actually had this whispered to me once by a tech support rep where they said, 
yeah, Adam, I know this really sucks here, and I've tried to tell management, you know what, if you went and worked with somebody else, I wouldn't blame you. Okay, when you have your own people saying that, you got a problem. Yeah, well, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's you know, the culture you you create in terms of, as a leader, in terms of how you want to treat your customers, absolutely is, is mirrored by how your employees uh feel they're being treated by the company. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. I've seen it as you have. I've seen it time and time again. And yeah, and sometimes it's it's very unconscious on the part of uh, a leader to in terms of setting that that tone. But it I've also seen leaders wake up and say, Oh, they weren't really aware of it, right? And they thought, okay, I they thought, okay, I I was uh I thought I was doing okay by my people, but you know, they didn't understand the people were taking the message from how they acted and and not only yeah. in terms of how they felt the customers that company was treating them, but also as you said, it's how they in turn were also treating the customer. You know, I I the first company I worked for decades ago, yeah, the CEO at the time was famous for his this was a public statement, his philosophy of customer service, which was that you should keep your customers surly but not rebellious. Right. So imagine imagine that in modern times, you know, a CEO coming out and saying, yeah, our customer service philosophy is, you know, we want to keep our – and the reason being is that this is a you know, multi-billion dollar company whose, you know, philosophy driven by the CEO was that, you know, if we always keep our customers just slightly unhappy, then they're always going to be open to buying more equipment and services to try to fix the problems that they're having that we created in the first place. Wow. And that was, that was, uh, and that was, well, say that. Well, but that's what that whole motto was. If we keep them surly, meaning we keep them just, you know, always have a sense of unease. So, yeah, yeah, at the end of a quarter, you know, it's new in my career, at the end of a quarter, and the boss, you know, the sales manager, branch manager said, hey, you know, we got to go out and get some orders to close the quarter off strong, you know, go to these customers because, yeah, they're a little bit unhappy, and let's sell them some more equipment make them happy. And you just wow. sort of continue to cycle. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that guy eventually was replaced, but, yeah, that was, that was yeah, that was just a different time, obviously. Absolutely, Andy. And, you know, the reason I just wanted to bring this up a little bit about the cultural piece is because I recognize it has an impact on the selling side of things as well because we have sales, we have marketing, we have customer service. So let's segue into selling more specifically because that's mostly what we're here to talk about. So tell me, mm -hmm. Andy, in your estimation, how is selling changing in today's business environment? Well, actually <laughs> – less than people believe. And I think that this is, I think it's become one of the sort of drumbeats that you hear consistently is how much selling has changed. And certainly the, I'll call it the trappings of sales have changed because obviously we have the customers are much more uh, enabled to be self-informed and self-educated about, you know, products and services they're looking at buying. They're not totally dependent on on sellers for information. You know, when I started my career well before the internet started, you know, I was the sole source of information about my product and service for the customer. So obviously they're much more independent than they were in the past, but 
and there's way more technology that's available, whether it's a CRM system or email systems or sales engagement platforms, whatever technologies exist. But there's this tendency among modern sellers, quote-unquote modern sellers, to think that somehow what I call the laws of physics of sales have been repealed, which is that it starts with the ability to connect with another human being. Right, start forming a relationship, right. start building some trust, to engaging somebody's interest. Those basics are still the same, and perhaps even a little more challenging, given the fact that so many distractions out there these days for both the buyers and sellers alike. But you know, it's sort of a loaded question. You know, how much, how's it changed? Well, yeah, outwardly, elements of it have changed, but the fundamentals are still the same. And the problem that so many business-to-business sellers are getting into is they're thinking that everything's changed and they're ignoring these foundational pieces to their peril because at the end of the day, people still want to buy from people. And they don't want to buy from a machine. If, if, and there's been tons of research done and studies showing that, yeah, even with advances in AI that, that uh, take in the medical field, for instance, they've run lots of tests where you know, people make a decision about a medical procedure they don't want to, even though they might get a better a better summary of their options from a you know an AI informed app, they actually want to talk to a human. And right. this is true, and this is true in sales as well. As, as people find it less risky to deal with humans, they want to hear what the human has to say. And so the ability, actually, I think, in this increasingly tech driven world that we're in is this ability to separate and differentiate yourself by becoming more human, by becoming better at the human skills. Well, I think that's, that is a change. And it's an area that more and more sellers need to work on if they really want to be successful. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so as well. And, you know, one of the I mean, I think it's great to have things like automation and things like that. So, you know, you have funnels after people opt in that follow up with them automatically mm-hmm. You have sure. a funnel that you drop somebody into after you have a conversation with them, and it can be a conversation of email and SMS and messenger and and stopping by their social media and a partridge in a pear tree and all that. And you can use any form of technology stack you want to put this together. To me, personally, and I want to get your thoughts on this, all that stuff is great, and you should be doing it, and you should be optimizing it. But what that really comes down to is automating your awareness. It's not going to automate your relationship. That's the distinction I like to make, and I want to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think it's a great way to phrase it. I think it's a great way to phrase it. Yeah, it, it's. I tell people is that, and I think this is really important for for people who are listening to this to involved in sales is that one of the if there is a change, let's say to some degree, from a cultural standpoint in sales is that people confuse. Uh, the funnels that confuse this awareness building prospecting with selling. You know, prospecting absolutely important. You, you know, you're not going to build a business if you don't have people to sell to. But to your point, it's awareness building. You know, if, even if you're out making cold calls, which is can still be very valuable depending what what you're selling, uh, that's still awareness building. I mean, I've spent years doing it. And I, that's always what I thought. I thought, okay, okay, I've got marketing I have to do today. I'm going to go out and make my calls and so on. But then once I have somebody that's interested, then selling starts. And what happens and what is happening is increasingly 
you're seeing organizations think that most of the battle is in getting the prospect. And I saw a quote the other day. Somebody said, you know, the hardest part of a deal is getting a lead. And I'm thinking, well, huh, let's deconstruct that. If if you think that the easy part of getting a deal is doing what I call the selling, you know, the discovery, the needs analysis, the qualification, the storytelling, the demonstration, the proposal, and so on. Do you think that's the easy part? Hmm. Well, then what you're saying is your product sells itself. And if your product sells itself, then getting prospects is going to be no problem. <laughs> so, so, you know, the hard part of the deal is actually selling. So, right. yeah, I agree. Everything else that precedes actually having a lead is awareness building. And it's absolutely essential. And you want to be good at it. It's just like whether you're using funnels or whether you're using more conventional, hey, I'm out making cold calls or I'm making out proactive outbound phone calls to establish connections and set up a meeting. That's great. But that's all awareness building. And then once you've got that interest, then this ability to connect with someone on a human level, activate their interest, start building some trust, that becomes paramount. And these are just fundamental human skills. And unfortunately, given sort of the way that that you know we've evolved in terms of technology usage in the society as whole, is yeah, we know that and this is not a criticism, we know millennials and, and Gen Zs they don't have as many conversations with their friends that are actual conversations with people they know. It's it's all tech intermediated, right? I've I've got a lot of conversations going on on Messenger and and through SMS and through email and and social, but it's a real difference when you actually have to talk, pick up the phone and talk to somebody. Which is why right. you know companies are having having training sessions or actually having to train newer generations of sellers actually how to speak on the phone. And that's okay. It's a you know, skill that, that can be learned. That is something. But it's <laughs> but it's but it's it's hugely important. You have to have be able to have a human conversation face to face or person to person, whether it's on the phone or a Zoom call or something like that. Uh it's still vitally important. I agree. And you know, another another thing I've discovered, it's funny we bring this up. I know you have a lot to share with us, but I want to go down one other segment. You mentioned that in to a certain degree we have a generation of people, a generation of salespeople in this country and in the world that we need to teach how to speak on the phone again. And I have made some discoveries as I grow one of my business ventures where I do a lot of outreach to folks. And I've been given all these scripts where you cold call people. And I've all, I'm also familiar with fast cash generation strategies where the idea is you make a list of your 20 best prospects or influencers and you call them and ask them some question and open up a conversation, and then, oh, you know, that's funny. I think this would be a great thing for you, too. Now, yeah, I'm aware of the tactics, and I think they're fine, but in this day and age, if you have somebody that you interact with uh, through the social medias and somebody that you interact with through email and SMS and all that, and all of a sudden you're blowing up their voicemail, that's going to come across just in the very beginning, it's kind of salesy because I, it's like I have people I deal with in business, allies in business, where we refer each other customers in the whole nine yards, where we've been closely associated for business in business for 10 years, and we don't even know each other's phone numbers. So it's kind of a kind of an issue when it comes to that because there's also, to me, a cultural thing that in many cases is simply replace the phone. You can look at the statistics that show that 
somewhere between two-thirds and three-fourths, depending on, or even up to 80%, depending on which ones you follow or which ones you've seen, show that people will not answer their phone live unless it's a scheduled call and or it's somebody who's giving them money. And even in that case, if the call comes in live and they don't answer it, there's about the same percentage chance that they won't even listen to their voicemail. Like if, um, like Andy, let's say you and I were in business, and uh, and uh, you know, I let's just say I'm sitting right here at my desk, and uh, my my Ring Central notifier pops up, and it says, "Oh, Andy Paul is calling," but for what, whatever reason, I can't take your call right that second. Uh, so it goes to voicemail. You know what I'm more likely to do? according to some of these studies, rather than even listen to the voicemail, uh, depending on the nature of our relationship, I'm likely to hit you up on Messenger, email you, or call you back in that order. Hit you up in Messenger, email you, or call you back in that order and say, call you called, what's up? So with all these things in play, and this, 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 these happen a lot of my own personal experiences, uh, how do we get people on the phone in the first place, and how do we persuade people of the need, especially in this newer generation, to learn or relearn phone selling techniques? Well, I, what we're seeing, though, and this is a, it's a good point, it's, is in the business-to-business -business sales world, there's a huge uh, shift underway from, you know, field sales to inside sales, and it's I, maybe huge is the wrong word. There's a, there's a shift in emphasis from from field sales to inside sales, but employment at sort of the entry level sales stage, where meaning what we call sales development reps who are making outbound phone calls, actually you know, employment at that level has actually gone up quite substantially in sales, and so there are. Right. You know, this newer generation of sellers who are being trained, who are being put in a position to, to make a ton of phone calls. And, you know, co companies are using it successfully. You know, I, th I think that for every statistic, <laughs> and this has been true probably uh -huh. as long as mankind has existed, for every statistic, you know, there's a, a counter statistic. And, right. And yeah, there are people who produce statistics saying that yeah, actually phone call is phone calling is actually quite healthy, and just to the opposite that that people do answer their phones and that uh, people do respond to well-crafted voicemails and I think it's it's using a mix that's really important, right? I mean, I think that at least I believe as I know there's some people who believe hey, you just you know sort of focus on one thing, but I think you use a mix of of ways to engage with people and to attract some sort of interest and awareness. And then at some point you're going to have a conversation with them. And right. So what you're trying to do is what, what do I, what's the best method for me to use to get to the point where the prospect potential prospect is ready to have a conversation with me. And that's a lot of companies are using phone very successfully. Yeah. That, that doesn't mean they're getting people on the first attempt by any stretch of imagination. Yeah. You know, they're, they're using cadences, uh, multiple series of multiple phone calls, and maybe combined with a, a social touch and a couple of emails to attract the person's attention or to intersect with them at a, a certain point in time. But yeah, I think I think phone still works. Uh, yeah, I think All right. people use successfully. People are successfully still using you know purely email uh, campaigns to set up initial phone or initial 
conversation, sales conversations. With, so it's it's finding the recipe that that works for you. And you know, this uh, again, we talk about studies. I mean, there was a study that was done. You know, I saw it a couple of years ago. I forget who it was from, but it's one of the big analyst firms that said that hey, yeah, if you're trying to cold call into sea level people that actually, you know, C-level people are almost some of the most responsive to to cold calls if you have a well-crafted value proposition. Interesting, Interesting. right? That they're actually more because, more because you would than... Because you would think that the C-level would be the hardest to reach. Yeah, and actually this was, was saying that that's not the case. Again, it's, it's the, the qualifier was, yeah, you had a, a compelling business case to talk about. But if you're somebody that's an experienced professional in your field, you understand what your value proposition is, you understand the value you're going to provide, or the outcomes people can achieve with using your product or service, and you can put that in a succinct message, you'll attract somebody's attention. Great. So I think that Absolutely. Yeah, I think part. Sorry. I think part. Well, I think part of it is it's just yeah. Everybody has filters these days. I think it's we got sort of two challenges. One is you know people are hugely distracted by all these various sources of information that that exists in the world and you know actually there was a, a paper done by a nobel prize winning economist back in the 1971 guy herbert simon uh and he studied this idea of, of how do busy distracted people basically make decisions about how to allocate slices of their time or otherwise how to, to allocate their attention and it was, wasn't necessarily earth-shattering, the conclusion was that we make economic decisions, right? It's, was that worth my time? Or am I, you know, I'm going to allocate my time to those sources of information that provide me a, an ROI for that investment. And I think that that's, it seems commonsensical on some level, but uh, yeah, so the way that we're wired. Yeah, I, and I think, and I think you, it just in one of your phrases you gave in that answer, really hit the nail is that people, you said that people will answer, people will respond when you have a well-crafted value proposition. I, as soon as I heard you say that, I'm thinking, yeah, that's exactly it. When you're tuned into WISM, when people understand this is something that is worth their time to respond to. I, I, and what I immediately thought of, and this was actually a friend of mine, and I love the guy, so I'm not going to – don't take this as a criticism. If you're listening, pal, just you know, understand that I'm just sharing this as an example because I think this guy's come a long way as well. But uh, one day I got a telephone call from this guy, and, again, this is somebody who doesn't – who I wouldn't normally speak on the phone with, so I'm already I'm thinking, all right, he's calling, so what is he trying to sell me? That little trigger is already – that little antenna is already up in my head. And then I went back and I listened to his voicemail, and it said, uh, hi, Adam, I'm calling because I wanted to tell you about this great new system that's going to get you tens of thousands of subscribers to your webinars. Call me back. Okay, so first of all, what makes him think I'm doing webinars? Because I wasn't doing webinars at the time. In fact, I had had some recent bad experiences with webinars, and I'd sworn off webinars. So first of all, <laughs> there was no awareness of where I was. Second of all, uh, this was way early in my business career, and I was used to dealing in hundreds, not thousands. So this idea of thousands was already sounding kind of sales scripty to me. So I disregarded the whole thing and thought, 
who the hell is teaching this guy how to read off scripts into the phone to his friends? Who told him that this is an appropriate thing to do? Now, if he had, now, if he had called me up or he had messaged me and he had said something like, so it's like, hey, Adam, I'm, I'm involved in this thing, um, and uh, I just wanted to run it by you and get your thoughts. Do you have five minutes I can get on your calendar? For him, I'd say, sure, I got five minutes for you. And we would have made that happen. And then he could have run it by me. And then he could have asked the questions like, hey, um, hey, you know, I just wanted to let you know about this new thing I'm involved with. It's a webinar system, and, uh, and, and we've shown that it can get people thousands of registrations. Hey, uh, do, you, do you know anybody who might be interested in this? Yeah, maybe. What, what about you? Right. Are you doing webinars right now? Uh, no. Uh, what, what, what's, what's going on with that? Uh, have you thought about doing webinars? Have you tried doing webinars? And Andy, you get the point that if you had taken the consultative approach and used the conversation piece to find out where I was, he, A, could have either rolled me out or B, persuaded me to give webinars a fresh look. Yeah, well, I think there's another aspect, though, about that conversation, though, that's important for people to understand is that that you are already part of his network. Right. And so he couldn't have done that to somebody cold, but he could do it to you, right? I'm not going to go to somebody I don't know to ask for advice on something, but I will go to people I know or that I have a connection with uh-huh. that part of my network. And so I think that that's, again, another lesson for people listening is, is you know, if you're trying to develop new business for your company with the product service you're selling is, is do you only look at part of your effort as I'm just making calls to try to get people interested or at another level, you're trying to say, look, I'm trying to build my network of people that ultimately there may be some value that I can derive from that network or provide to the network because, you know, it has to be bilateral that will result in business. And so you're right that guy who was part of your network or vice versa should have done the consultative, should have asked. I wouldn't even say consultative. It's more advice, right? Hey, right. you're in my network, Adam. You're a smart guy. appreciate your experience. Uh, do you have thoughts about or have any experience with this that, that could help me? And then it logically could have led to perhaps a conversation on that interested you. So, you know, if you have a network and if, and yeah, I'm a big believer in you know, Keith Ferrazzi and the books he's written about creating a network that's really an asset for you throughout your you know, duration of your career, that's the way that other person should have been looking at you. Yeah. See, see, this is one of those things where it's like I set up the pins and you went and you rolled not only a strike, but you went turkey on me. If, uh, if this was a <laughs> video interview, people would have seen me like, you know, dancing around, raising the roof, and and pointing to the screen like saying, "My man, my man," because you 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 hit so many nails right on the head with all that, and bifurcated that so perfectly. It, it, it's like you and I planned that almost, even though we didn't. Uh, and how we put the, we, how we put that together. Everything, yeah, everything. That's right, we didn't. Everything that you just said are reasons why if you're listening to this episode on Business Creators Radio Show right now, make sure you're subscribed to us. Make sure you visit our website and download this episode if you're listening live and listen to it again because this is solid gold, solid gold.
So what I'd like to do now, we're a little over halfway through this, uh, time is really flying here, is I'd like to ask you, Andy, uh, you know, sure. we, uh, I can't really tell if we're simplifying or we're complicating here, and different people might have different definitions of that, but one of the things that you uh, wanted me to run by you here, and I think this is very important, because I'm a believer in maximum results through minimalism myself, but you may agree or disagree, who knows? Are there negative effects to overcomplicating sales and overwhelming the sales reps? If not, not. And if so, what are they? Well, there are problems from, and I, I think that that really what the question is is, is given all these tools that are available, we talked about you know all these new technologies and so on. Are we? Yeah, you know, putting obstacles in the way of our sellers that don't don't need to exist, or putting obstacles in the path of our sellers forming these relationships they need to have with with buyers to to right. be able to win their business on a consistent basis. And and yeah, the answer is yes. We 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 collectively as as a sales profession are doing that. You know, we're we're using uh, technology 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 tools. Excuse me for tripping over my tongue there um, in ways, in ways that, that are making sales less personal and that make it easier for people who are perhaps, and this is not unusual people who are relatively new in sales to sort of hide behind the technology instead of actually having to go out and engage with, with people. And, you know, there's the evidence that exists such as it is, and sales is unfortunately a field that's not not researched very thoroughly, uh, or in a way that that's uh, you know very academic, I would say. And so the data is somewhat anecdotal, but what we're seeing is that over the last five to seven years is that business to business sales performance is dropping in terms of measured in terms of the percentage of reps that are attaining quota. And other analysts, big analyst firms, reporting that the average win rate is dropping, the average close rate is dropping, meaning deals you close, whether they you win them or lose them, uh, which means that uh, as well as the percentage of deals that end up in a no decision by the prospect has gone right. up pretty substantially. One one report saying that anywhere from 50 to 80 percent of prospects in a typical pipeline qualified prospect in typical pipeline end up in no decision, which to me is a huge failure. Yeah, I'd rather the customer compete to the end and have the customer choose somebody else than make no decision because it means that we've fundamentally failed in our job to to present a business case for them to make a change. Um, and, you know, obviously we can't win every deal, but but so we're at the same time, I said that sales and seeing all these great technologies come into the field is our performance is dropping. And to me, what you can't necessarily say cause and effect, it, there's some correlation to this idea that we're trying to substitute automation human relationships that draw making. And as a result, you know, we've made things, we've complicated things by introducing all these technologies. You know, there's, there's, uh, one study that was done a little over a year ago where they surveyed sales operations VPs and said, well, how many average tools do you have in your, your tech stack for your sellers? And the sales operations VPs, I think the number was, they came back on was five. And then they interviewed the salespeople and surveyed the salespeople 
and they said it was 13. So, wow. first of all, how can you use how can you use thir- first of all, how can you use five or seven different apps, let alone 13? But the point being is that that people are looking for shortcuts. That to me, that's what's driving a lot of the tool adoption. Is they're they're looking for shortcuts. They're looking for you know ways to bypass actually having to talk to people and have conversations and and so on. And you know, at the end of the day, it's still about four simple things. I have this acronym I I use when I I train companies and when companies come into uh, the sales house, my online training platform. And the acronym is BALD, B-A-L-D. And these are four, that acronym stands for the four core human selling skills, that if you can master these as a seller, that you can succeed in any environment and you'll succeed more than the typical person. And, and it's very simple. You know, the B stands for just be human, right? When you're engaged with a prospect, when you're having a conversation, be focused, turn your phone off, put it away, uh, be interested, be yourself in the other person. The A is ask great questions. The L is for listen slowly, meaning listen without your filters, without judgment, without the, you know, thinking about what the scripted question you're going to ask next is, is actually listen to what they're saying and ask appropriate follow-up questions. And the D is for deliver value, meaning that every time you interact with a prospect, What's their return on investment in that interaction? If you don't give them anything of value, and value in sales, this is it's a word that's used as a cliche almost, but it's, there's a very simple definition. Value in sales is anything that helps the customer make progress toward making a decision. So if you're having an interaction with the prospect, and as a result of that interaction, whether it's a phone call or an email or voicemail, whatever, as a result of that interaction, they're not able to say, yeah, we made progress towards making our decision as a result of this. Then it's a waste of their time and yours. Right. So this is a very simple framework by which to say, okay, yeah, I'm going into a call with a customer. I need to be focused. I need to be present. I need to be mindful. I need to ask great questions. I have to be prepared with great questions, that thoughtful questions that, force the customer to give me thoughtful answers, uh, that through the quality of the questions I ask, I'm, I'm really engaging the thought process of the buyer and forcing them to think perhaps differently about the, the challenge they're facing and the outcomes potentially they can receive. I'm going to listen to the answers slowly. I'm not going to jump to conclusions about what they're telling. I'm not just because they fit a certain persona. I'm not going to assume I know what their answer means. I'm going to ask great follow-up questions. And as a consequence, I'm going to deliver something of value through either the insight delivered to the questions I ask or whatever that help them make progress toward making a decision. And that's, that's really the world of sales. If you can master that, everything else is somewhat extraneous. Yeah. And, you know, I, again, I'll just uh, repeat for our listeners the, the bald acronym. B, be human. A, ask great questions. L, listen slowly. D, deliver value. And just like everything, when you hear things that you may have heard before and maybe they're presented to you slightly differently, in this case presented as an acronym, it made me especially think of number four, deliver value. And I'm thinking of cases where I was on both the giving and receiving ends of sales conversations. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of time and I'm thinking of times where and I'm gonna be completely candid about this, is I recognize I might not have been fulfilling D, which is deliver value. Now, could this have been in my language? Possibly. I think there were some cases where I just simply showed up and uh maybe I was a little green at it, maybe I didn't fully understand the um, the value that I myself brought to this to the interaction or whatever it was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I just didn't make a good case and uh, and and my thing is just like anything else in the world you have to allow yourself the opportunity to do okay and screw up once in a while because that's really the best way to get really good because how else are you going to learn a lesson oh, number sure. one um, and some yeah and in some cases it could be that the person on the other end either is not actually ready to receive this message regardless of what they think they're ready for or they uh, just simply don't get it. Like, uh, like there was one case. I'm thinking one time I had a conversation with somebody that went on for almost 45 minutes, and he kept coming back to, but I still don't understand what you do. And I had I'd given bullet points. I'd given case studies. I had shown how we did A and transformed it into B. It's like it's like if I was writing a book called "This Is What Adam Homie Does," I had just read him that book, and I just I just you know this guy is absolutely freaking clueless. Now, I could go back to that and reanalyze that. Maybe there's something in my approach that caused me to not deliver it in a way that was in alignment with his truth or his perception. I don't know this, and it was a long time ago, and I'm not in contact with the guy to ask him, but. I mean, I think it's just one of those things, and you said it earlier, you can't win all of them. But if you take the approach of pausing after each interaction, both the successful ones and the ones that leave you opportunities, you can discover more about these. And when you put it within the bald framework, you can surface some of the issues that may have arisen that without that framework you might have missed. Sure. Well, and to your point about your story, I mean, sometimes it's just as simple as, Asking someone, is that clear? Right? So when you're going through your process, you're explaining to someone what you do, they ask you, it's just a lot of times sellers, A, don't ask the question, or B, if they ask the question, they ask sort of at the end of the meeting. So do you have any other questions for us? And when you pose it like that, generally you get a response, which is no. And so what I find is very effective is, is, when you're going through, let's say it's a phone conversation and you think there's sort of multiple points that you're communicating, pause after each point and say, I just want to pause here. Was it clear to you what I just said about what we did? Or, you know, did I make that clear? And sometimes even, you know, ask them to state it back to you, right? Or just you re- right. recap it yourself and then say, is that clear? But you just don't, say, look, I'm going to get all the way through the end and ask if they have any questions, is get reviews, if you will. Think about it that way. Exactly. I want them to give me I want them to give me a user review of the first 15 minutes of this meeting. And yeah. that's, ask, ask for it. And then, you know, you're taking away some of this ambiguity that you get uncertainty. You get to the end of the call, and it's like, man, did we really get the message across or not? Well, don't leave it ambiguous. Ask. And this is this is so simple, and and most people just completely miss it. Is never leave 
a conversation or uh, in-person meeting or so on, unclear about whether you achieved your outcomes for the meeting and whether the buyer achieved their outcomes for the meeting. Yeah, for our listeners, you may have heard what Andy has said before. It's called checking in. Every so often in a conversation, whether it's a sales conversation, a, um, a counseling conversation, a coaching conversation, uh, any type of conversation, even a therapy conversation, you check in to see where the person is in the action. Or are they following? Is this relevant to them? What does it mean to them? What, do they, what did they just hear? Uh, whatever is appropriate for that particular situation. But the idea is continuing to make sure you're on the same page. And I think, and I agree rather, that is very, very important when it comes to sales conversations because if you're not making progress on that conversation, you're not making progress toward your money. And you're not, and, and the person on the other end is not making progress toward their value. So either recalibrate this or call exactly. it off. And I, and I'm, I'm going to vote for recalibration 99 times out of 100. Yeah, I mean, it could be. One of the things you're going to find out is that this, this particular prospect just is not a prospect for your product or service. That's fine. And maybe for a variety of reasons. One obviously could be personality. I mean, it's right. You're not obligated. You're not obligated to sell to everybody who's interested. And you have to make a decision as a seller that how are you going to use your time? And yeah, there's this framework, again, that Herbert Simon, uh, Hubert, Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, came up with that perhaps one of the things he's most famous for is this, this idea of people sort of fall into two personality types with decision making, one called a satisficer, one called a maximizer. And satisficers being people that will gather enough information to satisfy themselves that they've met their basic requirements, and then they make the good enough decision or maximizers who will look at every available option in order to satisfy themselves that they made the absolute best possible choice. And right. yeah, I've had clients that in their business, they could not afford to work with maximizers. Prospects were maximized. They just didn't have the time. Salespeople didn't have the time. And so, you know, there's lots of criteria you're going to use to decide whether someone is a fit for what you're doing, one of which could, the most basic obviously is, you know, do our our solutions line up with their requirements and their needs and the outcomes they want to achieve, but sometimes you can even have that, but just have not have a, a personal fit, in which case you'd say, look, I can invest a lot of time in this person but and build a relationship, but it's never going to result in the decision, then disqualify them. Yeah, you know what, you know what I'd like to you know, point out here, and you said it yourself, you're not obligated to work with some, you know, to work with everybody you have a conversation with, uh, like for example, that guy who just kept asking over, but I still don't get it. What do you do? After about the seventh time, what was I? I mean, I, I mean, it, and I remember it was a video conversation over Skype. I saw a neon sign over his head that was flashing in bright and bright letters the word clueless. And just combined with that and some of the other things he said, I recognize, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but I don't see where this energy is really going to help move either him or me forward. So you know, I politely ended that call, and we each went our separate ways, and that's fine. Uh, I've also had cases where I've had prospects uh, come in where if uh, we were looking at a checklist and I, you know, I was looking for 20 things to check off about what would make a great client, 
they actually made all 20 of the checkboxes, but there was something they said or something about their approach to the whole thing that told me that the energy was just off. And in that case, in that case, I was within my rights to say, you know, I'm just not sure about this one. And to me, Andy, there's a power in being in a place where you don't have to close every deal because there's no desperation, there's no, why didn't you close that deal? But sometimes the better part of valor is to walk away because it just ain't right. Well, again, as I mentioned earlier, that your prospects need to be able to say, look, I I had a return on the time I invested in right. the seller, in, in you. Well, you have the same obligation as a seller is, not to waste time with people that you judge are not ultimately going to make the decision to buy from you. And this is, you know, the hardest things for for sellers to sort of come to grips with because they could be talking to somebody who nominally is interested, but you're going to have to make an assessment and say, look, I've, I've got only got 24 hours a day, seven days a week to hit my numbers and hit the goals that we've set, whether you're the entrepreneur or and you're doing most of the selling or whether you're, you know, a sales professional. And you have to decide how are you going to allocate your time. And too often sellers fall into this trap of saying, well, this person's talking to me. They have a level of interest. Therefore, I must continue to invest time in them. And the really top producers get rid of the, you know, don't say too harshly, but, you know, they get rid of the ones that, that are really put on a low-priority basis, the ones that just are not prepared to move forward with the way that they need to. Yeah. You know, you know, you know this happened just the other day. I was, on a, I was on a prospect call for one of my ventures, and, uh, and the person uh, about 10 minutes into the conversation said, uh, you, know, well, you know, we're probably about six months away from making a decision on this. And so I just simply realized, okay, all right, time to bring this – Time to bring this one home. So I simply asked the question, and, you know, you may have a different approach to this, and other people may as well, but just this is what I did. I said, okay, so um, in the meantime, is there anything I can do to help support your decision-making process? And they said, well, no, not right now, but we'll let you know. Okay, fine. And uh, I, I, again, uh, you know, checked in and said, you know, and I said, you know, is it okay if I check in with you in about, you know, in six months? And they said, sure, I'd love it. And in the meantime, let's stay connected on social media. And if we have any questions of each other or anything we'd like to share, let's keep that conversation going. Okay. And so I ended the call, uh, went into my tracking system, put a note on them, follow-up number three happens in six months from today. But what I did there is I recognized as soon as I realized that uh, they were pretty firm that their decision that their decision was six months away, I brought the call to a close because my time on the phone could be used closing somebody who's ready to make a deal right now. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's perfectly fair. I mean, I, from a, yeah. a follow-up standpoint, you know, I think that I do things a little bit differently. It's just that sure. yeah, I want to have more frequent, frequent contacts. You know, and this is, again, using technology that's available to us is, Right. I may say, look, they're gonna be six six months out, but I'm gonna I want to you know be in touch with them maybe on a monthly basis. But each time I'm in touch with them, I'm gonna be sending them something, whether it's an article right. or a link to an article or a link to a PDF that's that's relevant to the decision they're trying to make. 
so that you know continue to add value during this phase. I call it value-based persistence, right? I'm gonna be, I'm gonna persist, but I'm always right. gonna every time I'm gonna ask them to take some time, some of their time to interact with my voicemail or a video email I send them or just a plain email. That there's something there that helps them again. Uh, that's valuable in the context of the decision they're trying to make. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Let me clarify a little bit further what I say, because I'm one of those people that writes better than I talk, believe it or not. Um, what I meant by schedule follow-up in six months is in six months is where I do the outreach of, hey, six months ago we had this conversation, wanted to check and see where you were at that process, and can we have a brief follow-up conversation? And in the meantime, because I said, let's stay connected on social. That's my way of exiting the conversation with a promise that we're going to stay in touch, where my plan is that, say, monthly or give or take, I'm going to show them an additional resource or a friendly share or something like that that's relative to the conversation we're having to keep my name and my business's name in their awareness as they work through this process. Absolutely, right. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, so in that case, it's a matter of phraseology. Okay. We have about eight minutes left here, and I do want to give you a moment at the end because I think you have something to share with us. But I do want to ask one more very important question here, Andy. Why do sales sure. leaders and salespeople – yeah, I'm sorry. Why do sales leaders and salespeople need to drastically increase investing time in their own development? As if everything we've covered here today doesn't answer that question, what else do you have for us? <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's always been a problem in, in sales, but you know, to some degree, in the past, we had more and more sales, more more and more salespeople, um, more and more salespeople worked for bigger companies, and the bigger companies did a better job of sort of ongoing training and development of their salespeople. You know, they invested in their people, and now we've our economy has you know, shifted. There's still a lot of people obviously work for big companies, but we have a booming tech sector, you know, driven by company, growing companies that in general don't have the resources uh, to to train and develop people. They're trying to look for people with expertise to come in. and But even people with expertise still need to continue to grow and develop. So there's this huge gap that exists where sellers are sort of left on their own to just sort of learn through experience but there's also varying degrees of motivation, as it is in any population, uh, uh, in terms of sellers' willingness to invest to get better. And part of this is, uh, I think, is really a cultural thing. It starts with the companies that say, look, it's really important for us that you develop. We're willing to invest some in your development, but we need you to invest along with us in your development. And that could be something as, as simple as I'm going to commit to listening to a podcast a week or reading a book a month to something more along the lines of what we've introduced with the sales house, which is a place where you can come spend 10, 15 minutes a day to learn something new about sales that you can integrate into your day-to-day -day selling and just over time build on that foundation of knowledge and get better. Because the, the yeah. studies are very clear that the problem with training, which it tends to be event-driven, right? We're going to put on a two-day workshop. We're going to have a keynote speaker like Andy come in and talk for an hour, or we're going to do a half-day seminar or a two-day workshop, is that those event-driven learning experiences 
uh, very transient. People tend to forget most of it, and the way people learn most effectively is through sort of learning slowly and continuously. And so the model yeah. really needs to change. Unfortunately, there aren't many resources. Companies aren't good at providing those type of resources. Um, so as a seller, if you're saying, look, how do I get from where I am today to where I want to be in my career in terms of either the the success I want to have on a consistent basis or the goals I want to achieve in terms of, hey, I'm selling $20,000 products now, you know, 10 years from now, I won't be selling to the biggest companies in the world, right? A different right. skill set. Well, to get there, you need to become the captain of your own ship. You need to be prepared to invest your own time and effort and dollars to upskill yourself and to educate yourself right. to be able to do that. And more and more sellers have to come to the realization that, that they need to do that. And hopefully companies as well come to the realization that that they can't just give lip service to training, you know, and say, look, we're going to bring in somebody to talk at our sales kickoff meeting and then we're done for the year. That's our training budget for the year. We'll skip the sales kickoff meeting and, you know, alternatively enroll people in a program like the sales house where they're involved every day in learning something new. It doesn't have to, it could be another one, it doesn't have to be mine, but that's just an example where it's that level of, uh, where you're thinking about learning as education, not as training. Right. Right. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right about that. And uh, I want to, you know, and I also want to thank you for giving us a little bit of insight into how the sales house works. And as we wrap up here, Andy, but first of all, I do want to say thank you very much. We have three minutes left here, and I want to give one of these minutes to you because uh, I believe you have a little something for our audience. If you want to go ahead and share that now. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, what we're offering is people come to the, the sales house. You know, they can try it out for seven days for $1 and right. experience everything we offer. We've got, you know, a variety of courses, and we do live coaching sessions every week. We've got a private community we set up on Slack for all of our members so that they can share their experiences, ask questions, and so on. And if, if people just come to the saleshouse.com forward slash join, it's, it's a $1 trial. And then, you know, if you like it, you just continue with it on a monthly basis. That's extremely cost effective. You think about it in terms of as a salesperson, if your goal is to hit a, a, a six figure income, you know, you're looking at spending a fraction of 1% of your income to, to reach that. Uh, that's pretty cost effective. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're, I mean, if you're talking about the first week for a dollar, I mean, some people, I mean, that's like, that's like $1 for seven days. Some people spend $7 on one cup of coffee. I mean, the value proposition, well, yeah. just to, just to check yeah. it out. I mean, <laughs> just yeah, to check it out. Seriously. But then it, seriously. But then it's like, yeah, it's only 500 bucks a year. And I said, if you're trying to make six figures, which you should as a salesperson, uh-huh. uh, depending on, you know, the role you're in and so on, but that's not unreasonable in the sales roles you get into it is, yeah, you're going to spend one half of 1% of your income, invest that to make another 20, another 30, another 50, or another $100,000 on top of that. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty simple equation of math. And, and, and so, and even so, that's a buck 37 a day. Yeah, yeah. Well, and actually, we've raised our price. We started when we launched it; it was a dollar a day. But yeah, we've continued to add so much, so much value to it, and we're continuing to. So I urge people join now because the price is going to be going up again by the, the end of this year. Absolutely, absolutely. So Andy Paul, founder of the Sales House, 
thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an honor and an education. Well, Adam, my pleasure, and thank you for having me. All right. For everybody listening, this is Adam Homie, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.